0: to you. Appreciate your love for the Lord and your love for His Word tonight. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, 16 this evening. Sorry those of you who were in first service and I told you to start in chapter 13. Um, what can I say? Just the way it is. We'll try to do better next time. In chapter 16, as Moses continues his second sermon to the children of Israel before they come into the land of Canaan, he reviews for them the Lord's requirements related to the keeping of uh, the three main uh, feasts of the Jewish religious calendar, the Feast of Passover, which was also kind of included the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as we'll see in a moment, and then the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, and also the Feast of Tabernacles. And we looked at this at at some length uh, earlier in uh, the law, specifically in the book of Exodus and elsewhere also. And uh, so you look at it and say, why does God repeat that here? Why would Moses repeat it here? And I think the reason that he repeats it is that he's speaking to the children of Israel of the fact that they are uh, now needing to uh, keep these feasts, offer these sacrifices and all of these different things that uh, they had been doing and wandering in a lot of different locations in the wilderness for 40 years. They were now to keep these things at the chosen place, the specified place that... Uh, He was going to set his tabernacle up, Shiloh, ultimately in Jerusalem where the temple would also be uh, built. Each one of these three feasts has a a single great spiritual theme associated uh, with the feast. And so there is something about these feasts, not just going through the actions of them, but there's some great theme, some great spiritual reality that the lord was wanting to remind his people of at least on an annual basis for them to stop these feasts were usually uh... leisurely they didn't like crowded in at, you know sometime between seven o'clock and eight o'clock at night on a weekday after having worked all week these were blocks of times that he would break out for them to really consider deeply their history with him and who and what he had been to them and so These were things that he was wanting them to to be reminded of, each one of of the feasts. He begins here in verse 16 with the Passover, and he says, Observe the month of Abib, and keep the Passover to the Lord your God, for in the month of Abib the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night, And therefore you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. And so the feast of Passover lands uh, every year in the Jewish religious calendar somewhere in March or April. It's different than our calendar. And the feast of Passover was designed to remind the children of Israel of God's great deliverance of them from the bondage of Egypt. We think back on the ten plagues, those of us who have been around long enough. God flexed His strong right arm. Now, you look at what He did to get those people out of Egypt. He got His people out of Egypt. And what it is, is a, Egypt is a picture of the world in the Bible, and it speaks to us as Christians uh, and reminds us uh, to celebrate our own testimony of how the Lord worked in our lives with His strong right arm, and He pulled us out of the world. He pulled us out of the bondage of our sin, the penalty that our sin uh, deserved. Paul declares in the New Testament that the Passover, the Jewish Passover, was a picture of Christ. And Jesus declared concerning all of the law and the prophets, he said to the religious leaders, he said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life, but these are they which testify of me. It's all shadows, types, pictures of Jesus. And that Passover, the celebration of the Passover, is that remembrance of how Jesus has delivered us out of the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul said, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened bread. For indeed de- Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And so they celebrated the shadow. Thankful for the shadow. Praise the Lord for the shadow. How he had delivered them from the bondage of Egypt. But Christ came into the world to save us from the greater bondage of sin. And he's broken that bondage in our life. And we celebrate it not one day out of the year. I hope you celebrate it every day. Thankful for Don't think too much about what you were, but just enough to say, thank you, Lord, that I'm no longer that. Whatever whatever complaints they may have about me, I'm no longer that. And he has saved us. And of course, we specifically remember this and celebrate this aspect of the Lord, his deliverance of us from our life of sin. In, in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Then in verse 3, he talks about not eating any unleavened bread during this feast of the Passover. And the, you had the feast, the, uh, the Passover was one day. But seven days, the seven days that followed the feast of Passover was the feast known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And during those seven days, the children of Israel would go through their homes under God's command and they would remove all all leaven from their homes. And leaven is a picture of sin in the Bible. And so they would take out all of the leaven out of of their houses, so there wouldn't be any leaven in there, And, and, and in a response to God's Passover. And the picture that that is to us as Christians is that Jesus came into the world not only to provide us with salvation and deliverance from Egypt, not only to provide us with the forgiveness of sins, but also to provide us with the power in our lives to say no to sin in our lives. He's broken the chains of of having to live the sinful life that we once lived. And so Jesus saves us, not in order for us to now be saved, but continue to live the old sinful life. But the Holy Spirit has now come into our lives to give us the power now to live a life Free from sin. And so that's what they... That was, this, this was just a picture. Uh, all that, the leaven, the removing of the leaven was a picture of the day that God would send the Messiah into the world and provide us with that greater deliverance from not leaven, you know, as a picture in our homes, but deliver us from the leaven within our lives. And again, Paul brings uh, all of this out when he speaks of of that... Uh, this picture of it, again in First Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you, are truly, you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And he's speaking in a way that a Jew would understand, and he's saying, all right, God saved us, And let's be thankful for that. But let's not continue to live the old life that we used to live. Let's live the new life of holiness and purity that God has called us to. So Jesus saves us not only from the penalty of our sin, but the power of our sin. Now that's something to celebrate. That's something to say thank you, Lord, for in our hearts and in our lives. Every single day. Perhaps I'll get an amen out of that. Otherwise I'll wonder if anyone's experienced that power. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the leaven of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrificed the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning." And you may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you. And here he's saying, now this needs to happen at the place that I choose, ultimately in Jerusalem at the temple. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall roast and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. And then six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly uh, to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. Then he talks about the feast of weeks. And he said, you shall count seven weeks for yourself Begin to count the seven weeks from the time that you begin to put the sickle to the grain. And then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks. We also know it as the Feast of Pentecost. And it's called Pentecost because it always fell 50 days after Passover. Uh, So Pentecost, speaking of the 50. And so you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand, so there was to be an offering involved which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. And so, the Feast of Weeks, again also known as the Feast of Pentecost. And at this Feast of Weeks, this was a time where the children of Israel celebrated God as their provider. They were just beginning to to, uh, harvest some of their grain. And they would bring that early part of the harvest and they would offer it to the Lord. They'd bring that corner, they'd cut that section, maybe a corner of a field. They'd bring that to the Lord. And as they're carrying that sheaf of wheat to the Lord, they look out at this sea of wheat and look and say, look at how our God has provided for us. And they'd bring that then to the Lord and they would take in the celebration of this feast, the celebration of the Lord for His provision for them physically. God Almighty takes the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 as a day in which He took and supplied the person and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit to the church. That hundred and twenty up in that upper room and there they were, the Holy Spirit came upon them, giving them the power to live a Christ-like life. Life, no matter where they would go in the world, no matter what opposition, no matter what difficulty, no matter what temptations, and God gave them that power, and so just as this was a shadow, they took and gave thanks to God the you know, in, in, the, in the shadow, in the, in the typology, they were thankful. It was a good feast, a wonderful feast. Thank you, Lord, for being our physical provider. Thank you for providing me with what I need to physically live life on this planet earth. But all of it was a picture of a day 2,000 years ago when God would send His Holy Spirit upon that church and provide us with the substance of the feast. The greater thing, the power of the Holy Spirit, the sustenance of the Holy Spirit to live a holy life in this ungodly world. And so we're able to look at this and look at it in a fuller way. But that's what they were celebrating. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, verse 13. And you shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days, when you have gathered from your threshing floor... And from your wine presses. So this would come at the, in the fall, always September, October. And uh, so they've just uh, celebrated or celebrating it over there. And uh, it would always come after they've brought all the crops in. So we know a little bit of something about this. You farmers, the almond farmers, we've been praying about mold for you, just so you know. The heart for farmers and uh, rain and untimely rain and all these things. We want you to be able to sell those almonds to Europe, if that's where you can get the best dollar. And if they won't take them because there's mold on them, we're looking out for you. Listen, I read the Modesto B. I I know everything about all this stuff. Highly educated. So anyway, what in the world were we talking about? So here they are. They bring in all of the flock. Crops. So the Feast of Pentecost was looking ahead to the harvest. This one's looking back on. I mean, everything's been brought in. And it's a time, it was a time for them just to settle down and just take seven days and say, let's celebrate how good God has been to us. Let's celebrate how faithful God has been to take good care of us. And that's what the Feast... Uh, Was And it was to be a celebration and you shall rejoice in your feast and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. And seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place where he chooses. And here it is, because the Lord your God will bless you and all your produce and all the work of your hands so that you shall surely rejoice. And so Jesus, in his first coming, he fulfilled the feast of Passover. He also fulfilled the uh, feast of Pentecost. But we have no clear fulfillment on his part of the Feast of Tabernacles. So it makes many of us believe that this will be a future fulfillment that will have something to do with His second coming or the time of the rapture. One of the interesting things when you look at the imagery of the Feast of Tabernacles, 15 days before the Feast of Tabernacles began, there would be the Feast of Trumpets, where a trumpet would be blown as a part of that feast. And it's interesting to us, for those of us who think that this may be fulfilled at the time of the rapture of the church, that the rapture is going to be announced, among other things, with a trump, a trump of God. And then we as Christians are going to be taken up into heaven as the great tribulation unfolds on the earth. We will be taken up into heaven to enjoy what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it will be a time, very much like the Feast of Tabernacles, where we will then look back, not on the previous year, but look back on our entire lifetimes and celebrate how faithful God has been to us. And so, this prob- it does have a future fulfillment, and it's interesting how it can fit with the rapture and also with the marriage supper of the Lamb uh, up in heaven. He said three times, verse 16, a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. At the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, at the feast of tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. They were to bring uh, sacrifices accordingly. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God which he has Given you. And so all of the males were supposed to, required to, uh, in the land, were retire, required to go to Jerusalem, ultimately in Jerusalem, uh, to keep these feasts. And of course, very often they brought their wives, brought their families. We see even in Jesus' life, um, at least one time, I would suspect more often than that, where he was brought to Jerusalem with his family during a feast and they kind of lost him, came back, and he's. Uh, playing double jeopardy with the religious leaders of the day, and uh, he has all the points. So, you know, they're wondering, you know, what kind of a kid is this that knows the Bible so well? And uh, so this was why they would go, even if they were poor, even from remote parts of Israel, back into Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. They were great celebrations, and Christian life is to be celebrated. Then he talks about judges. And you shall appoint judges and officers in your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. Now, we will read this continually through the Old Testament where if there was a case that, you know, we read it in Ruth, we read it some other places, where if um, there was a dispute between two people within a village or within a city, and they needed someone, uh, um, an impartial person to judge the case in the light of the Word of God, they couldn't settle it individually, they would go to the gates of the city, And uh, and the gates of the city were were, were the older men or the men that were highly esteemed. And and elders, not just in terms of age, but in terms of uh, their handling of the Scriptures and the respect that they had. And so these men would sit at the gate and cases could be brought to them. And then they would judge those cases in the light. Of of the Word of of God. So it was kind of this uh, interesting kind of place for a very rural situation um, to to set up a a kind of a means of a court system, a means where people could uh, have uh, have their cases uh, fairly looked after. And so this is what was uh, set up. So the gates are where uh, the gates of a city referred to a place where these kind of cases were judged. And you notice uh, the Uh, specifically the positive characteristic that they were supposed to have we're told there in verse 18 is they shall judge the people with just judgment and so positively they were to be people that would always give the right verdict no matter who was in front of them and uh, whether they knew the person didn't know one side or any of that they were to be known for being absolutely just people He said, here's what they should not be in verse 19. You shall not pervert uh, justice. So they needed to be uncompromising concerning the word of God. You shall not show partiality. In other words, they were to be impartial. Uh, They had no respect of persons. You could have the most powerful and the richest person in the village. You could have the person that was the shoemaker or whatever come. And this person would be faithful to declare uh, even whatever consequences to themselves. What does the word of God say and do it? It said that they also uh, shall not take a bribe. So not covetous people. They're incorruptible. You couldn't corrupt them in any way and say, you know, to move away from, from doing the right thing. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. It has an effect on us. Bribes do. They do. Flattery does. Bribes certainly do. Somebody gives you something, and now what happens? You're involved in a case, and somebody now gives you something that's valuable. That's going to complicate your thinking. I don't care who you are. It's going to complicate your thinking. Why do you think they have lobbyists in Washington? Why do you think salespeople take heads of business and, and the heads of purchasing departments of companies out to lunch? They know it works. It's powerful. And and so here, uh, these people were not to be moved by any kind of of a bribe. And you shall follow uh, what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. I mean, how blessed is a country. If you knew from Delhi to Los Angeles, to New York City, that every single judge, an elected official, had this as their character. It would be a tremendous peace in our hearts for that to be the case. And the Lord says, this is the kind of person I want my people coming to, even with the smallest disputes uh, in their, uh, their life. And. You shall not plant for yourself any tree is a wooden image nor uh, near the altar which you build for yourself to the Lord your God. You shall not set up a sacred pillar which the Lord your God hates. And so these are ways that the people of the land uh, worship their idols in, in Canaan. And God said, I don't want any of that. I want you to worship me my way. He said, you shall not sacrifice, chapter 17, to the Lord or your God a bull or sheep that has any blemish or defect, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now isn't that terrible that the Lord would have to tell us that? Why would he have to tell us that? It's a temptation. To keep the best for myself and then to offer the Lord my worst, my leftovers. And the Lord says, if you do that to me, it won't make me happy. If you think you're bringing me an offering, and this is going to be something that's a blessing to me. He said, I've got a word for it. It begins with A. Abomination. That's how I'll view it. God was always to get their best. And the reason that God demanded their best was everything they had belonged to Him. He gave it to them. And so they were simply to acknowledge everything that I have is from you. I wouldn't have anything, Lord, except for that I'm going to give you. Uh, my, my best. And it was a, 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 a uh, that communicating, Lord, I, I'm acknowledging your grace and your provision in my life, and to give him less than the best was, was to refuse to acknowledge that now. a second reason that it was an insult toward the Lord was because if I don't give God my best, it's going somewhere. It's not disappearing. If I don't give God my best, Typically, where does it go? The big I, me, my is going to go someplace. And where the best goes in my life, you talk about discretionary money, you talk about discretionary time, where the best goes is an indication of what I truly worship in life. You follow the money, follow the time. And, and so the, the, it was a, a reflection on that, of the fact that I, I can give him... Um, you know, flattery, or I can just, you know, speak the words to him. But practically, when push comes to shove, and it push often comes to shove, when it has to do with time or money or some kind of sacrifice, then it never gets to God. It ends up remaining mine, the best that's set aside for him. And so the Lord said he didn't want to have people thinking that that was okay and uh, they could be engaged in the worship of themselves and the worship of materialism and covetousness, and it was no big deal to God. He would just accept uh, anything uh, that we were, you know, any old leftover that we had uh, to give to God. Interesting thing is the Lord warns them, don't do this to me, and they did it, despite the warning. God never ever warns in his word or commands except that it's a danger to us. And later on, the last book of the, in terms of the order that it's in our Old Testament, the book of Malachi, the Lord spoke to him when they were just bringing in the lousiest of the lousy. And he said to them, A son honors his father and a servant his master. He said, If then I am the father, he said, Where's my honor? If I'm the master, where's my reverence? Where's the respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? The Lord said, you have offered defiled food on my altar. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And the Lord said to him, and when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, can you imagine... It becoming the norm in the nation of Israel to bring their blind animals to offer to God. I mean, why don't they just spit in his face? But that's what they did. That's how low everybody came before they ended up going into captivity. And the Lord said, and when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? He said, offer it then to your governor, your worldly rulers, would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. And, and so the importance of offering that. Now, in demanding a, a sacrifice that was without spot and without blemish, the Lord was doing something else that was very, very significant here. Again, having to do with Christ, having to do with the Messiah that he would, he would send. And what he was doing in this is he was planting a seed in their minds that the only sacrifice that is acceptable to him is one that is without spot and without blemish. In order that, if they had continued to obey that, when Jesus came on the scene to die for their sins as a lamb without spot and and without blemish, things would click for them. And they would realize, of course, my righteousness is unacceptable to get me into heaven. Of course I can't bring Him my works, my feeble, filthy rags of a thing to the Lord, and expect to get into heaven on the basis of that. Of course He can only accept a sacrifice that is without spot and without blemish. But because they had moved so far away from that, they didn't recognize and give Jesus the honor for the peerless sacrifice that, that he was. And to disregard Jesus' salvation is, in essence, to come to the Lord and say, Oh, he'll take anything. You can just give him anything. You just bring any old animal in any old shape or you can just show up at those pearly gates in any old condition you want and he'll take you. That's the kind of desperate God he is. God said, no. I want your best. And of course the best in terms of spiritually has been applied to us through just simple faith in in Christ. He said, if there is found among you, not talking about the world now, so don't go out stoning people by or High tomorrow. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about the people of God. He said, If there is found among you, within any of your gates, there in, in the promised land, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman, who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing His covenant, and here's the specific transgression, who has gone and served other gods, and worshipped them, either the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded. So here you've got a person that's gone out, and the key word is right there toward the end of verse 2, and you ought to mark it in your Bible some way, at least in your mind, is the word transgressing. Sometimes when you see in the Old Testament, you'll see the use of the word sin. And sometimes the word sin is used where a person didn't deliberately do something. I mean, they tried and they messed up and they sinned. They didn't go out, it wasn't open, out and out rebellion. When you see the word transgression, you're talking about deliberate disobedience against the known will of God. This person knows what they're doing. So they look and they've heard the commands... That there is not to be the worship of other gods in the land that God had given to them. There is not to be idolatry, any of those things. And this person looks and says, listen, I don't care what God's word says. I'm going to do whatever I want. And I don't care what harm it does to anyone else. I don't care what it does to God. I don't care what it does to our nation. I'm going to do precisely what I want to do. It's a terrible, terrible selfishness that... Jesus, or, or the Lord is talking about here. And so this person's saying, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I don't care if I introduce this attitude toward God and toward His Word as a leaven among the, the entire uh, nation. That's, that's what's going on here. And, and so, he said, and if you're told about this thing, so number one, and it is told to you, so you hear it. And then you hear of it, then go out and knock the stuffing out of them. That's how he says. "God's God's a God of law and order. He says, don't put any vigilante thing or mob thing together and on the basis of some report go out and wipe somebody out. He said, you hear about it, hear the report of it, then you shall inquire diligently. Give him a fair trial. Get the facts here. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing, and you shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. And so it was to be punished by death. You say, wow, that's pretty harsh. Yep, yeah, it sure is. And the reason it was harsh is because... One who worshipped other gods was a danger to the nation of Israel. This person's attitude, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do whatever I want, I don't care how many other people are infected by what infects me, that kind of person threatened the very existence of the nation of Israel. Threatening the very existence purposes of God through that nation. And the highest purpose was to bring Jesus into the world, to bring the Savior in the world, that we might know the forgiveness of sin in this room on this fall night in Modesto, California. The Lord's protecting something all the way down through the ages, right into this, into this room. And idolatry, this very attitude that this kind of person would have, ultimately that idolatry, the worship of false gods, the worship of of these idols and, and things would ultimately destroy Israel. And the northern kingdom of Judah would go into captivity to the Assyrians. Or the northern kingdom of Israel would go into captivity to the Assyrians. southern kingdom of Judah would go into captivity to the Babylonians. And they would be destroyed for disobedience, wide scale, to this particular commandment in God's word. And so the judgment was to be harsh. And even as harsh as the judgment was, it hardly deterred them from, from doing what they wanted to do. I'll tell you, I think it's better, and I think God's position on it is that it's better to be harsh with a few rather than protect their freedom to sin even if it leads to the destruction of the nation. And that's, that's a real issue that our nation is failing in. Where we go overboard to protect the sinful rights of a few. And nobody looks six months down the road, six years down the road, sixty years down the road. Is there a historical precedence for doing this in human history to see where this leads? And might we need to say no to the sin of some for the sake of the very existence of the nation? as someone has exhorted our nation said you ought to find out why they built the walls to begin with before you tear them down you stupid idiot that was in, that's my addition <laughs> but there's none of that there's none of that I mean you're tearing down walls defenses things that protect us our children, our grandchildren, the nation, and they're teared down to protect a handful that are of no value to the nation anyway. I don't know where it, I know where it leads. I end up in heaven. That's where it leads for me, because of Christ. Well, the Bible, God looked at it, and he had, he had better clarity than our judges. He said, no, I'm not going to sacrifice a nation because you got a few people that want to uh, transgress against my law. And whoever is de- deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. too easy to somebody come and say, I don't like Kyle, I'm going to accuse him of capital crime or idolatry or whatever it is. You had to have two or more witnesses in order to uh, bring a conviction. The hands then, if the person was convicted, the hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. You had to throw the first stone. In other words, if you took and you... Um, you had to be willing to stand behind your testimony. Those two or three people that brought the conviction had to be willing to stand behind their testimony to such a degree that they would cast the first stone in the stoning. That's a good, that really forces people to really make sure they've got their story straight and that they saw what they saw and they heard what they heard, and, and it's good. God he, he didn't want any... Uh, you know, mistaken things going on here. And so they were to step up, be the first one to throw the stone. This incidentally is what Jesus was quoting. So we saw two or three weeks ago in John chapter 8 when he challenged the religious leaders. They brought the woman that was caught in the very act of adultery and said, Moses' law says she ought to be stoned. And Jesus said, you who are without sin, you go ahead and cast the first stone. And he's quoting uh, this, this passage uh, to them. And the hands uh, and afterwards, after these witnesses threw the first stones, afterward, then the hands of all of the people were then to to stone the person to death. In other words, the general population of the city wasn't to uh, look at it and say, "Well, that's somebody else's problem, and I don't want to get involved and and and, and uh, you know make a stand against sin and that kind of a thing." and uh, and, and And move away from it. The whole city was to be involved in saying we stand behind this we stand against that sin and we're going to be involved in putting this away as as, uh, Moses says here and so you shall put away the evil from among you. So God's just saying to his people listen, I want an active participation on the part of my people to make a stand Against evil. You look, nations of the world, neighborhoods in Modesto, where a very small group of people, relatively speaking, take control of the nation or take control of the city or take control of the neighborhood because the larger group will not stand up. They don't want to get involved. God said, all right, I'll set up a thing where they can never get a foothold in the city. But it's going to require everyone having a will- willingness to make a stand against this, kind of, this evil or any kind of evil. If a matter arises that's too hard for you to judge, and uh, so you had these judges in the gates of the city, and they would have cases brought to them, and somebody brings a case, and they hear it, and they go, wow. Wow. That's that's out of my league. I'm double A. That's triple A. I don't know what in the world would you say to that. And they hear the case and they realize, we are not equipped to judge this thing uh, properly. We don't don't understand the word well enough. We don't know how how to apply the word well enough. And he gives some specifics of what might be the thing that would be too hard for them to judge between degrees of guilt for bloodshed. So it, they hit a case and they go, Man, we're having trouble figuring out whether this is manslaughter or whether it was first degree murder. We've interviewed them a hundred times and we can't figure this thing uh, out. Or between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another. All right, we know this person's guilty, but we don't know how, what sentence. To meet out to them. These were kind of things where they would look and say, All right, we've taken it this far, but we don't know what to do. Matters of controversy within your gates. Then here's what you do you shall arise and go up to the place, ultimately Jerusalem, where the Lord your God chooses. And you shall Come to the priests, to the Levites who were there, and to judge there in those days. Inquire of them. In other words, tell them the specifics of the case. Let them investigate the case. They probably they knew the word better than anyone, how God's word would apply to it. And then they shall pronounce upon you the sentence of the judgment. So it was great. Well, this was not an appeals court. There was no appeal, appeals court system in that, that early uh, justice system of of Israel it was a thing where they looked and said alright we can't figure it out let's send it to the, uh, send it higher up and they had a structure that allowed for that if you brought it to Jerusalem or to that place for the priests and the Levites to judge it then you had to stand behind their uh, their judging. You shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the Lord chooses. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they order you. In other words, their judgment was binding. Once you involved that higher court, you lost control of the situation. You had to now hold, uh, uh, you had to enforce that particular judgment. A verdict and sentence according to the sentence of the law which they instruct you according to the judgment which they tell you you shall do you shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you so again it was to be binding what they said was the rule then that was the sentence that was the verdict and that was to be held to and uh... That was, that was the laws, and you didn't get to change them later, and you didn't have any early release programs. Now, the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die, and so you shall put away, uh, uh, away the evil from Israel. In other words, here you've got a person, the priests and the Levites have given the verdict, and the person says, I'm not going to do that. God said, put them to death. Just didn't mess around with it. I don't want that leaven among my people. See, the problem is, is that if you have, and the problem that God was facing here, is if you have a, just, a system of justice, and then you have people who ignore the sentences that are given in that, in that particular process, and and they decide, no, I'm not going to heed that, or I'm not going to do that, then what you do is you're going to undermine the whole system of justice. It will devolve into anarchy within the country. So the Lord said, nope, this is to be handled in a very tight, secure way, and and in the death of a person that will not uh, abide by the legal system that I've set up, when he's put to death, all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act, Presumptuously, In other words, they won't follow him in his sin. God believes in uh, the death sentence being a deterrent in, uh, in the human condition. When you come, into the, uh, come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. So God knew that the day would come in their history where they'd look around, they'd be settled in the land of Israel, and they'd look around and they'd say, Hey, everybody's got a king. We don't have no king. I want a king. And what they're operating under was a theocracy here. We're no theocracy in the United States, and I'm saying we are. But they were operating under a theocracy. They took things to God, and God showed them in his word, or he gave them revelation, and that's how it was. But he knew one day they'd want a king. And it came out of the period of the judges where everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes and this whole cycle of sin and repentance and going back to sin and bondage and the whole mess. And finally, they rose up and they said, We need a king. We need a supreme ruler who can keep this... Cycle from happening to us over and over again. And the ultimate way for that cycle of, of sinning against God, it leads into bondage, and then they cry out to God to be released from that bondage. God sent a deliverer to them, released them from the bondage, and everything went well for a while, and then we went back into sin again, and the whole cycle was repeated. The solution to their problem was to keep walking with God. But, but they wanted to deal with it in a kind of a peripheral way. So they said, our problem is we don't have a king. So God looks down. This is 400 years before Saul and David. God looks down through time and he says, time's going to come. They're going to demand a king. They're going to want a king. as like an absolute physical ruler that's right before their eyes and they can touch to rule them. Now, the Lord wasn't pleased with it when ultimately he allows it. But he lets the children of Israel at that time know about it uh, through the prophet Samuel, that he considered it a rejection of him, but in his permissive will he was going to allow it, but allow it with particular uh, restrictions that he would uh, place upon it. And he talks about those uh, restrictions here. So you're going to want a king, and uh, I'm going to allow you to have a king as a a supreme uh, ruler. And here's the kind of king that I'm going to, you're going to get. He said, um, number one, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord, your God, chooses. So God said, no elections. Thank you. (laughs) No elections. He said, I'll pick the king. Man, how good would that be? You ever look at a ballot and you say there's 300 million people in this country. This is what ends up on the ballot? So God said he would pick the he would pick the king and uh, I think our system's best, I mean in terms of systems going, but this is better than our system. So The king is going to be one that the Lord chooses. You can't do better than that. God chose, uh, ultimately he will choose Saul as the first king of Israel. And he did choose him. Uh, He would then uh, call David to follow Saul. And then then he would declare that the kings were to come then from the lineage of David. So he was true to this in their history. He said, uh, second requirement is that it sh- he should be one from among your brethren. You shall set as a king over you. You shall not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So it was not to be a Gentile. It was to be a Jew that was to, to rule over them. He said, "Is a third requirement, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt. To multiply horses, for the Lord has said to you, "You shall not return that way again." So it wasn't like God was saying, "I don't want," I don't want the kings of Israel to like the equestrian events at the Olympics or something like that. He wasn't down on horses any kind of way. But the whole idea of horses is that the king would come into his position uh, a- a- as the king, and then he'd be tempted to multiply horses for himself to provide military security for the nation. So it'd be a tweak thing in his thinking where he's moving now from the place of saying, God is our security as a nation, to saying, No, God isn't enough, despite the fact that he delivered us out of Egypt and wiped out the entire Egyptian army complete with horses and chariots, but you can't trust him anymore. So the king would start to move away from a faith in God and he'd start to say, what, our, what we need to do is we need to develop a massive military as, as the, the source of our strength and security. And, uh, so, and then he would model that before the people so that ultimately the people would be fashioned over time to think that the great strength of our nation, the thing that keeps us safe and protects us, is the greatness uh, of our military rather than our relationship with God. And, and I think it also speaks of the fact that the Lord was saying concerning the king is that he wasn't to be a covetous man. He was not to be. Well, let's put it this way. He wasn't to be a man who loved war. Or loved conquest. He was to be content with the borders of the land that God gave him and not developing an army that he'd be then tempted to use in an offensive uh, fashion. He said as a fourth requirement, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And so he was uh, not to use that position. And you see that happening literally all over the world, even today, where uh, men get into a position of power. And they start to abuse their power in this way. They start to think that it's a right of their position to have a lot of women and have a lot of wives. And so God put this in there as a a protection against that kind of uh, self-indulgence. And and it isn't a thing, it wasn't solely a thing where God said, I don't want you to be multiplying wives in order to... um, uh, you know, he wasn't restricting it solely on a um, sexual immorality basis, but he he was um, he was trying to protect the nation from uh, in, in securing political alliances with other nations. And uh, we've talked about this before where even in Europe, we we don't run into that in the United States, but in Europe in the past and, and much of the world where you would have a king over here in this country and he would have a daughter and this king would give that daughter to this king as a wife in order to establish a relationship between the two nations. And and so that was the way that they did it in those days. And the Lord said, I don't want you developing pacts with these Gentile nations in an attempt to attain security. Again, your security is directly proportional to your relationship with me and your obedience to me. Not in, in getting a bunch of treaties with a bunch of people that are about a bunch of things that you guys aren't supposed to be about at all. And so it was to protect them from thinking, well, the safety and security of our nation is based upon our treaties with other nations, our relationship with other nations. Now, Solomon will break every one of these requirements in spades. You take a trip to Israel and you, can go, to the, you go to Megiddo and it's one of the horse. Uh, cities of Solomon he bought horses like crazy from Egypt and everywhere and brought it into Egypt I mean brought it into Israel God gave the prohibition no multiplication of wives Solomon ended up with a thousand wives and concubines Okay, so only I'm stunned what, I mean, th- this is not like a marginal disobedience. God didn't have like 60 things that he asked of him. He just had five or six things. And the problem was, is I have no doubt he, he secured many of them for his pleasure. That's nuts, okay? Just got to say it. So he, he secured, no doubt, some of them for his pleasure. But a lot of them he secured... Right from the very beginning, as a means of establishing security pacts with other nations, the King of Egypt sent his daughter to marry Sol- Solomon. Solomon married her, and and then built a house for her. And then what did he do next? He built a temple for her on the Mount of Olives, so she could worship her pagan gods in downtown Jerusalem. And then that modeled before the entire nation that paganism and idolatry is okay because it was modeled from the top until ultimately the entire nation goes into bondage because of what King Solomon introduced into the nation of, uh, of Israel. And so God had warned don't be multiplying wives. He, he, he warns elsewhere of the reason, uh, and, he, and he talks about it here, neither shall he multiply his wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away. His heart be turned away by his affection for the wife toward the gods, the false gods that she worshipped. And they did. He said, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. So he wasn't used to use his position to enrich himself. He wasn't to be a covetous kind of, uh, of person. He wasn't to model before the nation that what is, makes us a great nation, what makes us strong is our gold reserve, and what makes us strong is our economy, or these kinds of things. The Lord didn't want that. They wanted, they wanted this. What, and I'll tell you, what makes a nation great is when a nation can wake up in the morning and say, We're going to start this day as a nation, knowing we're on the right side of God. How wonderful would that be? We're on the right side of God. In any direction you want to look, His favor is on us. We're not violating His law. We're not poking Him in the eye every single day. You wouldn't have to worry one bit about any kind of a meltdown on Wall Street or anything if the nation was right with God. He said, take care of itself. God isn't going to let a nation like that fall. Everybody's anxious because we know we're on the wrong side of God. On too many of these things. And, and so, it wasn't to be uh, this, this kind of, uh, of a deal. And again, Solomon, he takes and he violates this like crazy again. He, he multiplied gold to such a degree that to own silver was to own nothing during his reign. Silver was considered to be like a stone in Jerusalem during his reign. That's how much gold Solomon uh, uh, accumulated one of the things it says about his reign is he, just in terms of tribute that would come into him from the nations around him, they would bring talents of gold. You know what the amount of it was? 666 talents a year. I think if I was him, I would have rounded it up one or down one or something. It's 666 talents of, of gold coming in a year just from the domination of, of, of other nations. And and so here is the warning that God gives here in terms of rulers. And I think it's very, very good for it to broaden out into rulers in the body of Christ, those that have authority, these kind of things. And there's the warning against uh, pride. There's the warning against sex, the opposite sex. There's the warning related to money. And uh, I think it was the Billy Graham Association years ago, maybe even right here in Modesto when they established the Modesto Manifesto. Got a ring to it, doesn't it? But Minesto is a, is a fun place in the heart of the Billy Graham Association. But one of the things is they set up uh, protective perimeters for their ministers focusing upon these three things as the things that disqualify most leaders in Christian ministry. Money, women, opposite sex, and pride. They take, they take out 95% of those that get taken out. And so... It's a great warning. And it shall be, uh, in verse 18, in terms of the sixth uh, requirement that he had of, of a ruler or of a king, leader. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests and the Levites. Now how would that, the first thing he was to do as a king was to get a copy of the book of Deuteronomy, sit down at his little desk, and write his own copy of the law. Now that's better than put your hand, putting your hand on a Bible on Inauguration Day, I'll tell you that. Now you have to know something to copy it. And so God wanted his rulers to be dominated by the word of God. He wasn't like getting this king and saying, all right, I think I want a king, a ruler over my people, and, uh, and I'm just going to pick out a really clever one, and I'm going to put him uh, over everybody so that he can you know, make this nation and what it's supposed to be in light of his cleverness. This guy didn't have to be anything but obedient. He wasn't supposed to make up any laws or any rules. All he was called to do was enforce God's rules that he had on the book, and the nation would be okay. But he had to know those rules first. So God said, I want you to take and to write this particular, um, uh, write out the whole book of Deuteronomy, have your own copy to read and read over and over again during the course of your reign. You think about the inauguration. Of the president of the United States of America, I might—I just might be a little disgusted at the moment. But you know, we had the in the last year or so, there was one of the legislators that got elected. I think it was in Minnesota or something, and he—he's Muslim, and he wanted to put his hand on the Quran and and uh, and swear to Allah now to be faithful to his responsibilities and you look at the whole thing and you say do isul vom time for this one to come home you know <laughs> what world am i living in anymore you know so but um, you look at that whole bible thing and you wonder how how pleased is god the people put their hand on his Bible when he knows they have no intention of following it in their term. I don't know if he's as excited about that as we are as Christians. I don't want to make any move backwards from our Christian heritage in the culture, but I don't know how much excites him these days about much of what he sees in the world, and he sees everything. And so he was to make a copy of this law in a book, and it shall be with him. wasn't to put it on a shelf in the living room, in a a mansion that had 125 rooms. How many of you read the newspaper today? Aaron Spelling's wife is selling their house. 123 rooms. I'm going to get my bid in. How would you like to mow the lawns associated with that thing? Fifty-some million square feet. I don't know what the thing was. And then I saw the price and I knew I couldn't bid on it. One hundred and fifty million. I'd have to sell all of Modesto to be able to. So it wasn't to end in some obscure place. He was to keep it with him. And notice what he was to do with it. He shall read it all the months of his life. He's to read it every day, all the days of his life. That, as a reason word, he may learn to fear the Lord his God. No one can rule properly who does not fear God. And also to be careful to observe or obey all the words of this law and these statutes. That, another reason word, his heart may not be lifted up among his brethren. This Bible is a mirror, the Bible says. You look into it, mirror, mirror, on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Not you, buckaroo. It'll always tell you the truth. And Being this word every single day is enough to humble all of us. And to realize no matter what position we have or God has given us in the body of Christ or what kind of authority He might give to us, we're just a man or a woman among a bunch of other men or women with a great God. And it keeps us humble. And pride is a great danger to leadership, isn't it? And then that, another reason word, that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right hand or to the left. So he just would be... Again, God didn't want him defining right and wrong or making laws. He just had to enforce the ones already on the book and that he may proclaim, prolong his days in the kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel so that God could prosper his reign. And again, as we notice here, God looks at things in a much longer picture than we look at them certainly in this country, not the rest of the world. Much of the rest of the world looks at the decisions that they're making in the light of a hundred years from now. They have a, very, a, a longer view. It's their culture. We don't have a longer view. God's Word, when He looks at things and says, I'm commanding you to do this, not just for your sake, but for the sake of your children and your grandchildren. Doing right here will have a lasting effect upon the people around you and whoever been, you've been put over a, a, in your sphere of influence. And the Lord's always looking longer on things. And one of the things that it tells me, and I, we'll close with this uh, chapter tonight, but when you, you look at this as he's talking about the qualifications of, of leaders, to God it was all a matter of character. The big issue for him was character. I don't see anything about SAT scores. I don't see anything about their IQ. I think it's good to have leaders. I'd rather have a smart leader than a dumb one if I'm going to be given a choice purely on that level. I like them to be able to see the big picture and and be able to uh, figure things out, look down the road a little bit, not have big gigantic blind spots in their decision making. So I'm not saying that, that that isn't important. It's just not the most important thing. The most important thing to God is their character. Because He can supply everything else to godly character. But godly character is what we bring or we don't bring to God, and you see, even you know today and and always, whenever it's an election and and these seasons. And when are we not in an election? I mean, we're going to November will come, and they're going to start running for two thousand and twelve. just it's, it just never stops the way the whole thing is gone. But this idea that character really doesn't count. We really need, you know, we've got to have power and we've got to be wealthy and they've got to, you know, have this intelligence and this position. And all. But, you know, if you have wealth and power and you have intelligence and it's absent uh, and it's not coupled with character, then you will just use that intelligence, that power, that influence to advance corruption. That's what you'll do. And a person with character won't do that. And so you look at the kind of, the, the, the quality of a nation that is produced when you have this kind of a leader. A person that cares about character. And then you look at the quality of a nation that is produced when they despise these kind of things in their leaders. And it produces two entirely different kinds of countries. One you want to live in, and the other you don't want to live in. And so God is smart. Smart once again. And Solomon would violate every one of these commands. He, did, he had his, the whole thing where we look at Ecclesiastes. By the way, I know I'm over time, so just relax doesn't help you, but at least I, I know it. But in terms of the Word of God, he abandoned that. Remember in Ecclesiastes, I'm going to find the meaning of life under the sun, under the S-U-N. I'm jettisoning the Word of God, that whole deal. I'm going to find out what the meaning of life is independent of God. I mean, he violated every single one of them. And then what happened at the end of his life? came back to God with his tail behind, between his legs. Praise the Lord, you can come back to God with our tail between our legs if we're forced to learn lessons the lessons the hard way. But unfortunately for Solomon, and it's kind of the soberness of, of having these kind of positions. He did actually sow the seeds for the destruction of the nation of Israel and their captivity because of his deliberate violation of these requirements of the king. Let's stand together. If the worship team come forward, we'll close up this evening. Pick things.